listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. We have family friends who are married with a few children. One of their children is a good friend of my son's. One would say that this year they have become best friends. This family also has a younger son, not even two years old. They have spent most of his short life fighting his cancer. For months, the people that surrounded them prayed and cheered for his recovery. He did not recover. He was recently given days, not weeks, to live. And last week, after what must have been one of the most horrific experiences to endure as a parent, he passed away. The family has been through so much, through things that I cannot begin to imagine or understand. And as they attempted to navigate their own grief, even days before his death, they also tried to shield their children as much as they could. The time came recently when the parents knew they would have to share the news with the siblings. They contacted us wanting to know if we would tell our children, our son is going to need somebody to talk to. Can that person be Zeke? The resurrection, we are told, is about hope. But this had better not be a cheap hope. This cannot be a shallow hope. The resurrection hope better have something to say to our friends who buried their little boy this Wednesday, or this resurrection hope doesn't deserve our admiration, our songs, and our joy this morning. We are told that the cross shows us what love is. The cross will not be bringing their little boy back to life. Now the empty tomb just might. And I praise God for this great mystery. All praise be to him. Oh, praise the name of our Lord, our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing his praise. O Lord, O Lord, our God. I am glad that there is this mysterious belief that this life is not the end and that somehow, someway, somewhere, we have some experience of fellowship with those family members, mentors, and friends who have, as Paul says, fallen asleep before us. We dream and hope for an awakening from the slumber of death, and those dreams are beautiful. But this empty tomb needs to be for us a very present treasure or it is no treasure at all. For as Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that, in the, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. 
All of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, I don't believe that you and I are truly satisfied with the idea that the mystery of the resurrection is simply about going to heaven when we die. That is cheap and shallow and ultimately disrespectful to the human experience. I have a good friend from Missouri who wrote me this following, these following words as we discussed the sermon together this last week. He said, one thing I've noticed about hope is it's offensive. Like when my friend's son died, for some reason it felt totally wrong to speak a hopeful resurrection word to him in the days and weeks following that horrible day. The only response that felt right was, for a while was silence. To speak a word of hope to someone who has just entered grief is like speaking a word of grace to someone who has just been abused, that they should somehow forgive their abuser. Hope and grace are true in both cases, but there is a time when silent presence is the only right thing, and I wonder, why is that? Why is hope too soon offensive? I think it's because cheap hope is selling a version of hope that hasn't fully entered into the weight of death. When the Apostle Paul wrote his great treatise on love to the Corinthians, that great 13th chapter, he closed that line of thought with these words. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I have often been struck by the items on this list. There are a lot of great ideas out there. A lot of great words and theological terms that Paul could have identified in his list of the great three that remain. Things like holiness, righteousness, truth. What about justice or mercy? And yet Paul chose these three, faith, hope, and love. There are three theological realities in the life and death of Christ. The incarnation... God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the crucifixion, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, and the resurrection, the risen Christ in an empty tomb. We often talk about them and how they relate to our theological points, but rarely are we encouraged in our tradition to sit and contemplate them as realities that transform our lives and our deaths. I have often connected these ideas in my own mind to the great thinker of Paul, to the great three of Paul. We see the greatest demonstration of love in the crucifixion. Even John told us that it is through the crucifixion that we know love, understand love, and experience love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, he said. The idea of faith, or more appropriately understood, faithfulness, is seen in the incarnation. This idea that God would pour his fullness into human form and come and walk among us, showing us how to live, showing us how to walk, showing us what a walk of righteousness, a walk of love, showing us what faithfulness looks like, 
practically with skin on. I feel as though my experience growing up in the church has been weighted toward these two realities, the incarnation and the crucifixion, the life and death of Jesus. Yet every year, Resurrection Sunday would roll around and we would all celebrate the Easter cantata. I knew that this was supposed to be big. I could feel the significance hanging in the air. This resurrection thing changes everything. This resurrection thing is about hope. These three remain, Paul had said, faith, hope, and love. Mostly we talked about faith and love. Yet all this is built upon hope. As Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. Three might remain, and love is certainly the greatest, but if that loving faithfulness doesn't stand on hope, it sinks into an ocean of irrelevance. Like I said, this resurrection thing changes everything. And yet all I seemed to hear were passing quips about how the empty tomb stood as proof to the claims and authority of Jesus. Or I would be reassured that the empty tomb meant that we could all know that we go to heaven when we die. But this didn't feel like the hope that Paul wrote about when he said our faith is in vain without it. Because if faith is about how we live in this life, how can hope only be about what happens after it? It didn't feel like the hope that Jesus modeled in his provocative and thunderous ministry. It wasn't real hope. It was a knockoff, like a fake Rolex watch sold on the corner by the street preachers. It was a shallow hope, a cheap hope, a dead hope. And I wanted the real thing. I wanted a deep hope. I wanted a living hope. God showed us what love looks like. It looks like self-sacrificial giving. It looks like spiritual eyes that are laser-focused on the brokenness of others and a resolute determination to do what I can, to give what I must, to bring out the goodness of creation wherever I find it. It looks like God laying it all down so that others can find freedom, and I can do that too. So can you. And Jesus showed us all about faith. He showed us how to walk and how to give. He showed us how to love God and how to love others with our actions. He showed us how to steal away in the early hours of the morning to find the realness of God in our lives. He modeled a true seeking and searching after the kingdom of God first, not second. He showed us how to trust and how not to let our insecurities get the best of us. He instructed us through his example how to set aside a worrisome mind that would suffocate the work that God wants to do through our humble lives of obedience. Jesus showed us how to walk. He taught us again and again about obedience. Of course, without love, Paul would tell us we are nothing more than a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal, and so God taught us what true love was and is. Of course, none of this matters if the whole story is a sham. If this really is just a feel-good message about being good people and not being selfish, if God is just looking for a bunch of folks to work on a bunch of homework that's never gonna get turned in, what's the point? Seems like the whole gig would be just as empty as those plastic Easter eggs that children will hunt for today and throw away tomorrow. Seems to be about as filling as those chocolate Easter bunnies that are made with that horrible chalky version of milk chocolate. 
You see the resurrection as God's proclamation that in fact he was telling the truth when he told his story the first time. For in the beginning, God said, it is good. And maybe it was, but nobody is believing that anymore. I know I certainly struggle too. And of course it's a struggle. When you consider all the false stories that we are bombarded with night and day, our screens without ceasing, the news feeds in our minds, the social feeds on our phones, the actual news stories on our actual TVs that are actually horribly short-sighted, misinformed, they tell us that death is making a stand, winning the day, the one thing that is never going away. They profit off of telling us that God was wrong about his world. It is not good. Hashtag fake news. And it's not just the death we hear about in the, wor- in the world outside of us. It's the internal monologues that sound an awful lot like our disappointed parents. The constant belittling that takes the form of negative self-talk. The never-ending comparisons that hound us as we try to find another night of restless sleep. These things do not belong. I have never known anything to be as certain as my own shortcomings, rebellion, and failure. My inadequacies are more destined than tomorrow's sunrise. I have never disappointed anybody more than I will disappoint myself. Not this year, not this season, not tomorrow, today. I think we all know it's perfectly possible to walk around breathing a long time after we've experienced death. When Paul said that the wages of sin is death, he meant now. There seems to be no shortage of a Christian walking dead, a world where people are alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. Yet as the story tells it, all that death was piled up on Jesus' shoulders as he hung on a cross. The weight of my mistakes, the stench of my sin, the repulsiveness of my rebellion was apparently enough to suffocate the image of the invisible God. The perfecter and finisher of the faith was somehow finished as he dealt with the magnitude of the things that weigh me down every day. My shame, my questions, my laziness. Death. Jesus laid dead in a tomb for at least 26 hours. Those might have been 26 of the longest hours of human history. Death, darkness, Christian tradition has often said, playing off of the words of Peter, that Jesus entered hell itself. Jesus, taking on the full weight of death, the full magnitude of suffering, of separation, of despair, of hopelessness. But that's not the end. We live in a world where a resurrection has happened. On that morning after Shabbat, Jesus strolled out of that tomb. He brushed my sin, yours as well, off of his shoulder rolled the stone aside, stepped out into the first rays of dawn, looked around for any sign of evil, and I imagine uttered these words, who's got next? Light piercing my terrible darkness. Life interrupting my own qualitative death. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called Hosanna on an album he created full of resurrection songs. His lyrics say this, I am tangled up in contradiction. I am strangled by my own two hands. I am hunted by the hounds of addiction. Hosanna, Hosanna. 
I have lied to everyone who trusts me. I have tried to fall when I could stand. I have only loved the ones who loved me. Hosanna, Hosanna. I have struggled to remove this raiment, tried to hide every shimmering strand. I contend with these ghosts and these hosts of bright angels. Hosanna. I have cursed the man you have made me. I have nursed the beast that bays for my blood. Oh, I have run from the one who would save me. Save me, Hosanna, Hosanna. Oh, Hosanna. See the long-awaited king come to set his people free. We cry, oh, Hosanna. Won't you tear the temple down, raise it up on holy ground. Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. We cry for blood, we take your life. Hosanna. We cry for blood, we take your life. Hosanna. You have crushed beneath your feet this vile serpent. You have carried to the grave the black stain. You have torn apart the temple's holy curtain. You have beaten death at death's own game. Hosanna. In the beginning, God said it was very good. The resurrection is God's reaffirmation that it still is in spite of all the vile things that you, I, or anyone else has filled this world up with, when God weighs it against the beauty, the potential, the goodness that still exists, not just in the rocks and the soil and the dirt and the crops, yes, this, but also in the sweat and the art and the music and the singing and the blood and the tears, when God weighs the brokenness of humanity against its benevolent goodness, God still deems it all worth saving. The empty tomb is a universal declaration of hope. Resounding hope. Living hope. This is not a cheap hope. But is it a deep hope? Does it simply look good on the poetic surface, shining just enough to cover the garbage buried underneath? Is it a hope that simply makes us feel good about being forgiven? Does this hope leave us there, or is it a hope that actually changes the sinner within us? Is this a deep hope? When we are told that deep calls out to deep, is hope the theme of her song? There's a book called Telling the Truth. The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale by Frederick Beekner. He said this, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. That is a tragedy. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That is the comedy. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a dang? In answer, the news of the gospel is that extraordinary things happen to him just as in fairy tales extraordinary things happen. Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree, a crook, and climbs down a saint. Paul sets out a hatchet man for the Pharisees and comes back a fool for Christ. 
It is impossible for anybody to leave behind the darkness of this world he carries on his back like a snail, but for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. All, all together, they are the truth. One of my favorite thinkers and writers has once articulated that what it means to be children of the resurrection is that you and I go through life kicking the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Paul wrote to the Corinthians earlier in that first passage about eternal life. There is something eternal, and by this we speak of a qualitative term, not a quantitative one. The Greek word is relevant here, aeonios. This term does not refer to something that still exists a billion years from now. The term refers to a kind of thing that has such reverence, such depth, such substance that it always has been and always will be. It's a truer true, a more real real. In many ways, there is nothing more real than death. For some, like our friends, and like so many of you, this is a very literal and real death. For others, this death is just as real and yet harder to quantify. It is that very qualitative death, the tragedy that Beekner spoke of. In either case, it's a very qualitative, very substantial, a very, very real death. We need an equally qualitative, increasingly substantial, surpassingly real life. This is resurrection life. So yes, my son will be there for his friend as he processes the death of his little brother. He will do this because the greatest of these is love. He will do this because God delights in our faithfulness. For when all is said and done, three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, but it's built upon the bedrock of a hope that is made up of aeonios, eternal living, the thing of fairy tales come true. I will teach my son to kick the darkness of death until it bleeds daylight, only because we show that the darkness is the real sham. It covers the deepest reality that always has been and always will be. For in the beginning, God said it was good, and death wasn't around to hear the declaration. Why? Because death didn't exist yet. You see, death is an intruder. He entered late in the story and will be leaving early. He and all of his cronies, you know them, greed and cancer and racism and selfishness and abuse and disaster and deception and destruction. Yes, they all have a non-refundable one-way ticket to the great lake of fire. And therein lies the transformation of death, not just an erasing. The celebration, the celebration of Resurrection Day is not that death has been erased, for although it will be one day, it is not yet. But that death is transformed. As Paul told the Corinthians, that little boy who died last week was loved in his death, even shared Christ in his death, he and his family. But the resurrection gives us hope that such a death can be transformed into beautiful life, both now and in the world to come. To put it in the words of another, 
This is the day that we remember that all those things belong to death and death does not belong. This becomes an appropriate note on which to move towards our time of the Eucharist and the Lord's table. I would like to invite our servers to head back and begin serving the elements. If you're visiting us with us this morning, please know that we have an open table. This means that if you would like to join us in remembering and celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we invite you to join us as family today. Just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. In a sense, this is an awkward mood to end a sermon on for Easter Sunday and I never, ever read my sermons from a pulpit. If you've been with us for a while, then you are familiar with the fact that I often jump around on stage demanding your participation in cheering about an empty tomb. I run around and work the crowd into a lather of fist pumps and cheers, celebration and exuberant gusto. But I often feel as though I'm peddling snake oil, trying to make up for miscommunication and ignorance with just turning the volume up. My resurrection preaching has often been aimed at this thunderous rock music that comes across through a blown out tweeter tinny, unpleasant, and annoying. But today, I wanted us to understand that our celebration is rooted in a deep, bold, eternal bass riff. Aeonios. In fact, that does sound like the name of an awesome rock band, if I do say so myself. Our celebration, not just today, but every day, is rooted in the reality that life is what started this world and life will be what remains when it is over. Our faithful obedience of loving our neighbors and our enemies as ourselves is rooted in a hope that runs deep to the center of existence. It is not shallow and it is not cheap. It is profound and mysterious and yet more real and more true than anything you've ever experienced. Hope causes us to believe in second chances, accept the challenge of forgiveness, conquer addictions, get up from failures, redefine our todays and our tomorrows, and even fight terminal illness. Why? Because life wins. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So we'll prepare to raise our communion cups to that amazing truth here in a moment, and we will celebrate together. But one more set of lyrics from Andrew Peterson to help us reflect on the elements today. Every footstep tells a story as the people join the feast. We remember his blood and body broken for you and me. One step and we remember. The other we proclaim. His death until he comes. Oh, he's coming back. He's coming back again. And every time we break the bread, we drink the wine. 
I can hear the song in my heart and in my head, and I sing along. We remember and we proclaim his death until he comes again. We remember, we proclaim, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Now we join with friends and neighbors to celebrate again. Around a different kind of table, we remember just the same. This feast, it is a battle that we wage against the night. This joy is just a shadow of the resurrection, of the resurrection life. And so we remember that on that night, Jesus supped with his disciples. On that night that he sang a hymn, that night in which he was betrayed, that night in which he went to a cross because he believed in hope. He believed in hope. That night he took a piece of bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, take and eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. That same night he also took a cup. He passed it amongst his disciples and said to them, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, my prayer is that your resurrection hope, a living hope this morning, would be light that pierces our own darkness. God, you know every single person that walked through the door this morning. You know every single story, every single narrative. You know all the baggage. You know all the death. There, there is so much death that was brought through those doors this morning. In many senses, we have a room full of darkness. And yet, I don't think you're intimidated this morning. I think you look at all these stories and you say, I got this. There is nothing that grace will not abound even more. And so we celebrate that resurrection here today. God, would you fill us with hope that the things that we brought with us that cripple us, the things that we hide in dark corners, the things that have been unconfessed, untold, the things we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be able to articulate, but they, they keep us trapped. Would you blow apart those chains in the same way you rolled open the empty tomb? We pray all these things in the resurrected Christ's name this morning. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.